audiologists, and the scientists who support them. This is a podcast where you'll come with questions and leave with more of them. A podcast by two people who love thinking and lively debate, but hate beating around the bush and baseless claims. Welcome to episode three, Throne to the Wolves, or how to deal with pseudoscience, charlatans, know-it-alls, and internet assholes. So if you haven't listened to episode one, that may be a prerequisite for this episode. In that episode, we talked about experts, how we have to be able to rely upon experts because none of us has the time to know everything. But we also have to be able to identify when someone is just blowing smoke and wasting our time. We talked about positive signs of expertise, like being able to answer several rounds of why after any assertion. We also discussed warning signs like unwillingness to admit uncertainty or unwillingness to acknowledge nuance. In today's episode, though, we're going to spend some time discussing the social landscape of our field and how the interactions among people are one of the biggest driving forces in moving toward EBP. So... To get started, one thing I've found is that it's always important to emphasize first that a lot of times I notice that students and newer clinicians in our field and, you know, even up through, you know, advanced clinicians in our field tend to want to put things into buckets where something is either evidence-based or not evidence-based. They want things like a list of everything that is evidence-based and everything that's not so that they can know what to use and know what to avoid. But The thing that I want to make sure to emphasize up front is that that rarely works because there's often going to be caveats and there's often going to be contexts that make a given practice appropriate sometimes and inappropriate other times. I think that it's usually better to think of this as like a spectrum. I I usually use a rainbow as as an example going from, you know, purple, blue, green, yellow, orange, down to red, and across the spectrum where you essentially put on one end of it, so like on the purple end, the actual data and the science. And then on the other end of it, you put things that are pseudoscience. And we're definitely going to have to define pseudoscience real quick. And we, we find these things each episode that we need to get a real nice definition going for. So I'll give my definition for it, for it, and then we'll spot check against your definition. Because um, you'll see a little, a little bit of variability when you ask, ask experts what pseudoscience is. But the thing that makes pseudoscience really unique is that it's almost like anti-science. So it's basically in direct conflict with what the research and um, evidence shows, so much so that if you understand the evidence, it usually sounds absurd. So an example of something that would be pseudoscience like speech vitamins. So these things exist. You can get on amazon.com and Google vitamins for correcting children's speech and language disorders and find vitamins that people are like, you know, take these three times per day and your child's communication disorder will be fixed. So that's the type of stuff that everything we know basically leads us to believe that there is an extremely low chance of those vitamins working, right? So can I ask you a question about that? So is it pseudo? Pseudo to me sounds like partly. 
So is it the idea that part of it is true that vitamins can be good for you, just not for that particular thing, namely speech, as opposed to a nutritional deficit? Yeah, it usually capitalizes on a bit of the data, but then completely misinterprets it or spins it in a way that just is so counter to what the data is actually showing that it ends up becoming nonsense. And I think another warning sign, too, that I've often seen in people who share pseudoscientific things with others and are pretty adamant about them. So like people who are selling it, people who are big advocates of something that is pseudoscientific, usually when you present them with data and say, but look at this, this would lead us to believe that this is unlikely to work or might not work, they tend to push back really hard. It usually is very emotionally driven. Like the reason it exists in the first place is because people desperately want a solution for something and then people kind of like latch on to that solution. So I also wanted to add in this idea of there being a spectrum is what we're talking about here is knowledge, right? And what people think they know. And the people on the pseudoscience end, they really think they know this. Like you can't tell them they're, in their mind, they've acquired a lot of useful knowledge. And in the same way that at another end, the, the actual science end, they've acquired useful knowledge. But the fact is both ends feel that what they're saying is true. And that's the toughest part. And, you know, we'll talk about people later and that people are, are often the big problem. But I also wanted to add something that I think is really important. And I think most people in speech pathology, the example you gave was great, which is this idea that vitamins can help your kid's speech, right? And most people would be like, I have never heard of that in any program ever. And in fact, I could get my license revoked perhaps for like trying to do that. However, I think what we tend to be more at risk of is misinterpretation of good science. And I want to throw that on our continuum as well, which is this idea that there's just plain old garbage to this is amazing, strong evidence for which there have been plenty of studies. But there's some studies that have been so badly misinterpreted, it might as well be pseudoscience. And an example is taste zones on your tongue. There was a German scientist in the 1900s who found that there are certain parts of your tongue that tend to be more sensitive to certain tastes. But what we have in textbooks up through college by the taste experts who are complaining about these textbooks, showing that there's a part of your tongue for sweet, there's a part of your tongue for bitter, there's a part of your tongue for salty, umami, and these are just the parts for that thing. And the weird thing is people still believe it and it's still in textbooks. What he didn't say is that you don't have these tastes all over. There's parts that are more sensitive to it. But because people want black and white, they make cubby holes on your tongue, which is not what the original paper ever said. So then you're fighting back. They spend so many years, so much time fighting against this notion that there are these taste maps. And so to me, that is almost as bad as pseudoscience because it has some evidence. It's really tricky and confusing. And so uh, I just wanted to make sure we throw that on there as well, because it's kind of key to the problems that, we, that we're having. And here's the other thing that really, really gets me that I'm going to get off my soapbox. I, I don't know how I got on this soapbox so quickly, but the funniest thing to me is that nobody tastes ice cream and only tastes sweet at the front of their tongue. You're reading this textbook and you're like, oh, that's right. Of course, the tip of your tongue is sweet. Let's just say that's true, right? But why doesn't sweet disappear in the middle of your mouth? When you have Mountain Dew, do you go, it only works at the front of my tongue? No, but no one's questioning it, even though their bodies are saying complete otherwise. 
So to me, that's why that's the strength of misinterpreting good signs is that you make it make sense in your head, even though the evidence doesn't support it. Yeah. It's difficult to, you know, because like our two examples of speech vitamins and like, you know, the tongue and everything seem so in some ways like minor or straightforward, like, oh, obviously, like obviously or whatever. But really like in our field, there is a ton of stuff, a ton of stuff that either sits kind of at the low end of the spectrum or sits in pseudoscience land that is just really difficult to have conversations with about among fellow clinicians because people get so convinced of something and then it's difficult to converse about it because too many people have debated debated about it in inappropriate ways and, you know, feelings get hurt and whatnot. And so this is, so the fact that there's not these yes, no buckets is also the answer to why, and I don't recall if I've said this on a previous podcast before, because I talk about this a lot, but people will often say things like, oh, why can't like ASHA, for example, when they have their exhibit hall, why can't they in the, in the exhibit hall just only have things that are evidence-based and reject anything that's not evidence-based from being able to be there? And when people say that, I want that to be kind of like an immediate clue that it's time to do some discussion about it, because that would be impossible to do, impossible to do because of context where there's certain things that, you know, are sold by businesses that in some cases make sense and in other cases aren't evidence aligned. Caveats, context, and also things change so quickly too. Like Asha would literally have to stay on top of it and stay on top of every single thing in their marketing in order to be able to put something like that in place. So lots and lots of gray, lots of gray all over the place. May I also indicate that Asha is a business. And so they're expecting us to use our brains as well. And just because an abstract got accepted, oh boy, (laughs) I don't want to step in in any hot water here, but um, let's say an abstract gets accepted and the abstract reads well, but what they actually present on stage is bullshit, right? It's the audience's job to go, uh, excuse me, but (laughs) how was that the case? And let people do the vetting, let the conversations happen. It's not Ash's job to hand us the perfect meal every time. Sometimes they hand us ingredients and we have to figure it out ourselves because it's not their job to do all the processing for us. We are the scientists at this meeting or we are the clinicians. We are the educated folks who are supposed to be able to think through these things. And isn't it more interesting to find out there was an idea that came to ASHA that the audience basically derailed with good conversation and debate, as opposed to finding out that ASHA's censoring somebody, they're going to end up coming back gangbusters because everyone's going to say, ASHA shouldn't decide this for us. We should have the right to decide. And they're, you know, so they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. But I really would like to put the power in the hands of the clinicians who are responsible or the scientists who are responsible for the papers and the knowledge that's being disseminated. Right, right. It's our job to have the hard conversations with each other and not be afraid of having the hard conversations as often as possible. And so once you kind of like come to terms with the fact that there's lots of gray, information is changing, you know, things are on a spectrum. It's not real simple. You can't just go to someone and be like, give me a list of the things to do and things to not do because it just won't work very well. There's also a lot of resources out there on detecting pseudoscience, right? So like if I were to sit here and say, I myself have fallen prey to pseudoscience multiple times before, and I see fellow clinicians fall prey to this like baloney stuff that makes no sense 
all the time. So it's like, well, what's the solution to that, right? And there actually are, and we'll, I will make sure to get this up on the website in show notes because there's some really good resources about like checklists you can go through where you can ask yourself self questions in order to help guide you toward critical analysis of some fact or something that's being put in front of you. A good example is Carl Sagan's baloney detection kit, which Greg Loff also often presents about quite a bit. Another good example is like there's a journal article by Patrick Finn published in, let's see, it would have been in Perspectives on Science and Pseudoscience and Communication Disorders. It walks people through a lot of like, think of this and answer this, analyze this, look at this, right? Um, but I actually don't think it's a good use of our time to coach people on this st- that stuff in this podcast, because honestly, first of all, it's something you can read on your own, and it really just takes practice. Like It takes you sitting down, looking at something like that, and using those checklists over and over and over again until they start to become more internalized. Because when I'm evaluating something at this point in time, like, I don't use checklists. Do you use checklists? Not at all. Or do you go? <laughs> exactly. I understand this. I understand what I'm talking about. I understand the science. I, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And yeah, I mean, that's you, I know enough about the topic that I don't need a checklist anymore. I'm not saying I didn't need one as a, you know, an initial infrastructure and a way to approach a topic. But I started to fill in the meat with doing the work, as you said, doing practice, having conversations, hearing those kinds of discussions at meetings and doing, and doing the readings as well. Yeah, I'm with you on that for sure. Yeah, you basically just have lots of practice, lots of practice, you know, putting it in place over time. So look at that stuff if you don't feel like you've had practice on on the show notes at www.evidenceandargument.com. But I think the more valuable thing is learning how to interact with people and realize how human interaction is going to influence your ability to put EBP in place because so many of our the decisions that we make make are affected by the people around us, our own emotions as we approach a situation, and whether or not we can see the bias in other people's statements and arguments and also see bias within ourselves, which also goes back to episode one. Remember in episode one? <laughs> right. Absolutely. So you're, we're about to talk about people, and I just want to say that I completely agree. People are the hardest part of figuring out what's real, what's not real, because word of mouth is still so much more potent than reading something on your own. I mean, even even a post with a title, like uh, maybe CNN or something has something that somebody shared and you just read the title part and they're so informative. You're like, well, I heard on CNN that you didn't even read the article. So sometimes a title alone is enough for you to decide that you have knowledge and people like shortcuts. That's what cognitive biases are. They're shortcuts that we all make in order to come to a conclusion quickly. Because in all of my talks, I always say, the thing about this talk is that if you don't get anything else, always remember humans are lazy. Every last one of us wants to get to information as quickly as possible. Most people don't enjoy the process unless it's necessary. And I talk about system one and system two processing. System one is fast, intuitive rule of thumb thinking, meaning like if you hear pitter patter outside, you're like, oh, it must be raining, right? It could be leaves just in the wind. But the first thing is, is it raining? You look. So that's because you've experienced it over and over and over and over again. But system two processing is basically requiring evidence. You have to go do some work. There's no rule of thumb. So if I say, 
these two people are over 100 years old, and this one person is only 35 years old. Which one has two older brothers? Duh. System one's going to be like the dude that's 30 years old. These guys are over 100. They're the oldest people on the planet. So you use system one because we're lazy. However, if both people are 35, I'll say, which one has two older brothers? You're like, well, shoot, there's no rule of thumb for that. I have to seek knowledge and ask questions because there's no rule of thumb. But anytime we can default to system one, we do it. We only do system two if there's no possible way for us to get around asking questions to collect data to actually figure it out ourselves. And so and there's kind of two different things I think that we're talking about when it comes to seeing a simple headline or a simple statement of something and being like, oh, yep, that's the truth. I'm done. Here we go. There's the simplicity of it, right? But then there's also the aspect of how many people around me are sharing this? How many people are around me are, you know, on social media clicking like? How many social media influencers that am I witness resharing this? And we end up relying on the shortcuts of other human beings heavily. Like a good example, I I could name a million examples of this where I've seen multiple things in our field being put forth to SLPs and one of them got taken up much more readily than the other purely because of the social influence or like marketing aspects of it and then the other not so much. There's been a lot of like letters to ASHA circulating recently related to racism because it's been such a hot topic among everyone. And I've seen a whole bunch of different ones. But what's funny is it the ones that have gotten the most popular I've noticed are simply the ones that the people with the biggest social media following endorsed. And then they just went wild. But I've been spending a lot of time over the last week, like, you know, carefully reading things and, you know, asking for other people's input. And if you really kind of look at things carefully, there's actually a lot of resources out there. There's a lot of higher quality things than some of the things that went viral. But because friends told each other and social media influencers told each other, oh, this is the thing you should be focusing on. And this is the thing that really matters. People are like, oh, okay, that's the thing that matters. That's the thing I'm going to retweet, sign and share. (laughs) And it's like, what? And you know, the other thing is people want to be involved, but they don't know what to do. They don't want to be on the bad side, the wrong side of history, as people say. So they're like, yeah, I signed the petition. I signed like, for instance, there was one on Uh, I forget which group it was, but it was basically a response to Ash's letter about racism or anti-racism or Black Lives Matter. In fact, I think it was an argument because they didn't clearly say those things. And it just went gangbusters in like no time. And what people have been doing is they'll click on it and they'll scroll really quickly to see, one, is there a comment that has like 500 replies? Because that's the one I want to read. And it usually is one that said, this letter is dumb or something like that. It's like, ooh, drama, right? But all the other ones like signed, signed, done, done, signed, you go girl, like all those ones are just scroll, scroll, scroll. And they're like, ooh, another one. Someone hates this idea. So even when people are looking for dissent, they're looking for it to see should they care. And it's those things that actually get attention. So while that may have gone viral, that's the best place to have dissent as well right? Because people will read it as opposed to the other one that's probably boring yeah, and yeah. reasonable. <laughs> and you scrolled, right. it was, you know what I'm saying? It's like, who the hell wants something everybody agrees with? I want to, <laughs> I want to see a fight. It's been a minute. Right. I'm bored at home. I want to mudsling and, you know, fight on Facebook. 
So, but you're, but while it's viral, you guys, you know, if you disagree, if you have, you know, what it takes, the guts, maybe it's a place to put a little bit of a, well, I mean, should we think about this kind of comment? Yeah, that, 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 that's something that when I graduated with my PhD, so I've said this in other episodes, but I'll say it again, because it's kind of a weird context. So I got my PhD and was heavily involved in science before I ever worked as a clinician. So when I graduated with my PhD, and then started to become more involved with fellow SLPs, because I was working as an SLP, the thing that I was least ready for was people like the thing that I was by far the least ready for is how easily influenced I would be by fellow clinicians who just felt so well-meaning and would share information with me. And because I was, even though I was science trained as a newbie clinician, there's a lot of things that I'm like, some really nice lady, you know, told me to do this thing in year two. And I know enough now that I know that I shouldn't have said yes, but it's just so easy to want to just trust the people around you because it feels so good to just trust the people around you and let them kind of tell you what to do. Well, I I disagree with that in that I don't I don't feel that way. I tend to be less trusting. I have some friends who are similar in that they walk up to everybody and they start everybody at 100 until you keep fucking up and then you go down from 100 to whatever number you end up on on their trust scale. I start most people at zero and you show me that, you know, you are somebody worth interacting with other than to make jokes about because you're full of pseudoscience, then you might move up the ranks. And so that just is my natural disposition. So I think there are people on both ends and some people might be somewhere in the middle, right? There are some topics where everyone starts at zero and there are topics where everyone starts at a hundred and some stuff in between, right? And usually it's a topic you know a lot about. I know a lot about certain things. So when some people start talking, I'm like, let's see if this person knows what they're talking about. I'm always in skepticism mode. And there are other areas where I'm just like, I don't know. I have no clue. I'll take whatever the hell people (laughs) people have to say. It's just sad. I don't even know where to start with that one. So I'm more willing to just explore, let people sort of like yabber off at the mouth because I couldn't even stop them and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't even start with that one. You know, I don't know. So I, I think it varies. And, I, I, you know, you're I, I perhaps you were and you can tell me this, you may have been socialized to be nice and to be thought of as nice in a different way than some others. And so maybe that's why it's nice to be nice. <laughs> yeah, 100 percent. I 100 percent. And I think a lot of I think a lot of us, I, I see that a lot, you know, so it's definitely not everybody who, you know, follows the nice is what I like to call it, because I've started to notice this over time that it's like, whoever's the sweetest to the fellow colleagues and seems the most helpful end up, ends up being the one that people are like, oh, this person must be correct. And it's like, holy shit, where did we get to the point where like we equated nice with like accurate or nice with right? You know what I mean? Um, but no, I have a huge, I have a huge bias for nice. One of the things that I noticed when I was working as a clinician and looking at all the resources out there for knowing what's EBP and knowing the evidence is I saw a lot of people who focused more on de-implementation than implementation, where like if you could sit there and be like, okay, tell me about all the like websites, people, or resources that are very much like, oh, I'll help you know what's EBP. There was a lot of um, what I perceived to be aggression toward 
people who either didn't know the evidence or towards pseudoscientists. And it was off-putting to me. It was really off-putting to me. Um, And so when I started the informed SLP, which was in about year six of being an SLP, I immediately kind of like got the reputation among people who were interested in EBP as being like the nice one, because I purposely avoided a lot of the attacks on pseudoscience and focus on de-implementation. And instead, I was like, I'm just going to focus purely on implementation because like that feels good to me. And then and that continues to feel good to me. But the longer I do the informed SLP, the more I've started to see the risks of not being fully comfortable with both de-implementation and implementation. And I should probably back up and describe those real quick in case. Yeah, I was just going to say in your world, (laughs) what is that? So implementation means taking something from the evidence and putting it into clinical practice, right? So de-implementation means looking at clinical practice and removing something from your toolkit that shouldn't be there. That process of removing something from your toolkit that shouldn't be there often doesn't feel good to SLPs. Oh, I'm with you 100%. I'm the opposite of you in so many ways. (laughs) Your whole follow the nice, I am just eat the spice. I'm going to shove it in your face. I am not known for being nice in my disposition. And that's because my goal is de-implementation because it's hard to implement anything if it's noise, if there's a ton of noise, you know, that you can't figure out what you should be doing. And people generally do what's easiest. Again, we're all humans are lazy. That's just who we are, right? And so there's a lot of things that showed up in swallowing that hurt people. And so the fastest way to stop hurting people is to literally stop hurting people, which means we have to pull things away. Like everyone gets thickened liquids. Everyone gets a chin tuck. If you are an older person with a slightly slow swallow, well, you just can't, you're going to get a peg tube. I mean, these things are in some places running rampant. And to me, adding, you know, a technique where you do a push up and a swallow, let's say it works. Who cares if you shouldn't have a peg tube in the first place? So to me... I have a reputation just in general. My, my communication style is to be very direct, forward. And people often say, I really like your tell it like it is style because we are out. People need to hear this. We can't have flowery language when somebody's nutrition, hydration, airway protection is at risk. So for me, it's worked out that I tend to not be, well, while I agree the chin tuck is great, but you might consider so-and-so because I know it's not a night might consider the risks of being somebody who might have been hurting people is so high among the nice SLP crew that they're more likely to turn off. They're more likely to say, oh, thanks for sharing that. I'll consider it and keep doing what they're doing because who wants to admit that they may have been hurting people inadvertently for years? So if you make a suggestion as opposed to directly ask the rationale for what they're currently doing, they will de-implement it themselves. When people find themselves tap, tap dancing because they'll say, I use device X all the time. Device X is amazing. I see success. And then I chime in and say, cool, can you define success? And it's like, well, I mean, he had a diet downgrade. And I'm like, right, but didn't you decide that? Like, what's the physiology that you're deciding? And then it's just silence and no, but you know, you know, they're de-implementing on in their brain, at least they're detaching that in their brain because they actually don't know why they're doing it. 
And sometimes that's the best strategy is to just ask people, and you can do it politely and professional, can you help me understand uh, more about your rationale for that? And they'll either not respond at all, or they'll take a, a you know a stab at it, and you're like, yeah, you see that doesn't connect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of the like science communication literature suggests the same thing, like where you basically like help lead people through the thought path by you know questioning you know why and asking for their explanation and rationale in you know a very straightforward professional way. And I don't know about you, but for me, the toughest thing about that is that the right way to do it is extremely time consuming for me. You know what I mean? Like, holy holy shit. Like when we make a post on social media and it starts to, and it like grates at a certain group of people's nerves because it hints, it hints on deep implementation. You've got like a laundry list of all these people being like, but this worked for me. This worked for me. This worked for me, (laughs) you know? And so like the process of building trust and approaching something through that kind of like sequence of problem solving is just like, (laughs) you know what, our most popular podcast and my other podcast called down the hatch about swallowing. The third episode is what's the deal with Eastim? And it's got I don't know, it's close to 20,000 listens just on SoundCloud. I don't I don't track iTunes. I don't know how many listens there. But that is by far the most popular. It's also the shortest. So I don't know what that's saying. But The point is Eastim is one of those controversial things where it hit the ground the most, it's just a bombshell and people had an opinion before they knew why. And so I just want to say that there's something so hilarious that uh, Dr. Alicia Vost, my co-host on that said, and she said, people should, because you talked about a toolbox and taking things, taking tools away from people gets them very upset. But if you add something to their toolbox, they're game. They're like, yes, more things I can do. Tell me what to do. I need something to do. But what I found really interesting that she said was, okay, fine, you have your toolbox. We don't, we might not want to take things away, but you should have to declare the reason for it before you're allowed to touch it. Like some hand should come and smack your hand the second you go to that box if it's wrong. And until you get it right, you, the hand, it just keeps smacking your hand every time we try to get in that toolbox. And if you can't declare a rationale that's relative to that patient, you shouldn't be able to touch it. We're not taking it away. We're just saying that there's a riddle that you have to be able to solve before you can touch it. And when you put it that way, I'm sure there may be some things that are bullshit, but I don't know. There might be a unique patient where like, holy shit, this should not work. But look at that work for that patient. And here's why. And here's what we learned from it. So that's what I've learned lately is that if you can declare it and there's no study for it, but you have a sound rationale, it doesn't mean it should come out necessarily. It probably just means that you have to think through the process. And that to me is a nice tool, your brain. I usually say my courses don't sell a device or a technique. What we're doing is handing you back the manual to your brain because the best tool you have is between your ears. And people have not connected with that because they haven't been expected to. They've been treated like speech language technicians as opposed to speech language pathologists, where they can't even tell you what the pathology is a lot of times, because they haven't figured that out. So um, yeah, it's the hardest thing is really, like you said, de-implementation. But if you say, we don't want to take anything away, we want you to be able to declare the rationale for it. People take it out on their own, and they'll feel more empowered by that. Like I used to do this, but I don't anymore because I recognize X, Y, Z. Ooh, that's And then that knowledge is like a drop. It's a ripple that everyone can hear. As opposed to, you can't touch this. And then they want to know even more why they can't touch it. 
Right. And and then they end up coming up with, you know, situations in which maybe they should touch it, maybe they should touch it just a little bit. And then and then it becomes even trickier. I really like that analogy a lot. Yeah, it's so tempting to want to go for the simplest, fastest possible things. And I think, you know, I think our field's businesses to a certain extent play a role in this when it comes to selling people quick fixes, because the role of a business is to sell you what you hope is true, where like you've got this like thought in your in the back of your mind that you're hoping is true. And for speech language pathologists, it's things like, oh man, how nice would it be to be able to get this kid off my caseload in six months and make a massive difference? And his mom is, you know, like crying and hugging me because I just changed everything in this child's life. Like, you know, how incredible would that be if like I had this quick fix for therapy for this kid, you know? And when people sell things that are either like quick or simple or straightforward and appeal to what you're hoping is true, it makes it so tempting to be like, well, I mean, maybe I should try that. <laughs> maybe I should try that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I said that I said the same thing with the Eastem stuff. And I'd say, you know, there's a reason the ab machine for your stomach where you sit there at the table and type away and the thing is just like stimulating your stomach and you're just getting abs and the fat's melting away. The reason that that we don't all own one. And gyms are still th- a thing to do, right? It's because it doesn't work. Now, I'm not saying ESIM doesn't work for swallowing. So the concern is that there are some devices that people say, throw the kitchen sink at them, last ditch effort. Nothing else worked. So we're using ESIM. And I go, why would that be the, la- why would it be that physiology dictates what you do? I mean, what if the, what if a, what, if, why isn't the peg tube a last ditch effort? Why isn't modifying a diet the last ditch effort? It's because in your mind, what we do, 90% of our job is that, but e-stim, it's so controversial and you're, you're stimming their neck. That's last ditch. But really, there shouldn't be last ditch. Now I get in certain fields, like maybe surgery is last ditch under certain conditions. It's like, okay, if nothing else works, Surgery on your spine is something nobody wants to go through. If you can just like lose weight or whatever, bariatric surgery, for instance, that kind of thing. But for, for what we're doing, we should always know why we're, this is goes back to, to touching that tool. And I think that this, this idea that there, people can sell that hope, right? Some, again, some places do a great job of selling that hope. And when I was starting my PhD, I ended up studying ESTEM for my um, dissertation. And at the time, I had to learn what these devices were. And when I'd go online, a company would have something like cure dysphagia in great big letters on the website. And then patients start saying to, to clinicians, I want this. I want this device. They're saying it cures. They're saying it cures. And of course, then you have a patient, like you said, that mom who's crying and is, you know, you're going to be on like Oprah one day and she's going to bring you out. This is your life. She fixed your speech 10 years ago. Now you're amazing, right? It's the same idea. It's like, you know, this is going to cure everything. So it's hard to say no to other clinicians who are saying, why aren't you using this? It's especially hard to say to patients who are like, I want you to use this thing on me. And they're motivated, but they don't understand why it may or may not work and neither do you. Yeah, it's, I think some of the most desperate situations are what most perpetuate some of the lesser evidence-based things because desperation leads to poor decision-making. Oh, of course, in all aspects of human interactions, right? Yeah, we're not exempt from that. 
No. I mean, like, like some of the, you know, most stressful times in my life where I felt most desperate for just like relief, just like get me out of this situation or make my life easier, make this, you know, easier in some way are the times in which I would be most likely to use things that if I was not under stress or duress or desperate, there's no way in hell I would have done. You, you all would probably laugh like like anybody who knows me and knows how like deep I am into science and everything would laugh at some of the things that I've done in, in my most desperate moments, like with infant twins, for example, <laughs> like going through cold and flu season. And I have, you know, another mom of, you know, quadruplets who's like, oh, we hardly have problems during cold and flu season at all. My babies aren't all, all night crying their little heads off because you know what I do? I put this essential oil called thieves on the heel of their feet every single night. They sleep through the night the whole time and they never, ever get sick. You know, as I'm sitting there at like 5 a.m. having like reading through this social media thread with this other like mom of like multiples or whatever. And I'm like, you know what? You know what? <laughs> Fuck it. I'm going to start putting oil on their feet every night. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I did. I totally did. Because like when when you feel desperate and when you feel like I have tried everything, I've tried everything and it's not working. And so why wouldn't I trust someone who's just trying to help and is offering me a solution? Long story short, that lady sells essential oils, but you know, yeah. <laughs> that has nothing to do with it. That has nothing to do with it. <laughs> well, I wonder if she's getting something out of this deal. <laughs> Which sort of brings us back to businesses, right? So there are some important parts there, which is if you have the sense that this works, you are willing to exploit people at a level that you don't, you, again, this goes back to my idea where the people who believe this stuff and it's wrong, they believe the hell out of it in their mind. And you know what? Her story may have been a lie about her kids sleeping. You can't go back and verify. Show me the video, the grainy video of your kids in the room on that day. Like we don't even ask for evidence. We just hear it and go buy some oils. Right. And the other thing is that it can't hurt idea. You know, it's like, well, so what? They're going to wake up with really soft feet and like, what could happen? What's the worst that could happen? But as clinicians, and as scientists, we are supposed to be having a, a higher level of expectation, a higher standard that it can't hurt is not a therapeutic principle or strategy. It should help. It shouldn't hurt and it should help. It's sort of like, you know, our, what is the um, oath, uh, Hippocratic oath, right? To say we should have one as well, where that's not our rational, can't hurt, can't hurt, can't hurt. Even surgery has to say, you know, you can die. I know it's just a very routine and maybe 0.01% people die, but you still have to, they have to say every time there's always a risk of infection and death with every surgery. They have to say it. I found that actually with, so now that I read science full time and read science as it relates specifically to clinical practice, and I'm getting more and more, you know, in tune with all the different resources that are in the field and which ones are good and which ones aren't great and, you know, all that type of stuff. The thing that I've started to notice is it's definitely true that a lot of the things that I would put in like the shit pile where I'm like, eh, just don't like, just don't do that. A lot of them definitely fall into that category if it wouldn't hurt. You know what I mean? It's not going to cause pain. The worst thing it's going to do is maybe waste a little bit of the client's time. But the thing that has started to bother me over time is a lot of times what it actually ends up hurting is clinicians. Clinicians spend thousands of dollars on courses that are just complete bullshit. But I thought you were going somewhere else. Forget about the money. Forget about what about our what about our standards? 
to me, when you said it hurts clinicians, it's that we start to justify these things and it becomes routine and it can't hurt becomes my go-to favorite. And that's because it doesn't hurt anybody and maybe they were going to get better anyway because, you know, you're dealing with a population where you don't know what the natural history of this disease is. So you think you're doing it and really you're taking home a salary. They are billing. And at least in the medical area, sometimes they have to not have a certain kind of therapy to make sure they have enough money for speech therapy. Maybe they're not going to have as much OT or something like that because they're going to have more SLP. And you are now taking away a vital chat. Like if they're in the spontaneous recovery period, what you train them can have can pay dividends if it's if it's done properly, or it could stall them in such a way. It's sort of like a early in intervention. That precious time with a child shouldn't be can't hurt. It should be we know what we're doing. We know where you should be. We want to push you forward because time is brain for both babies at those ages, as well as stroke, right? And so we could be actually making it worse than if they had ever seen a speech pathologist. Maybe it's worse for them to have seen us than for them to just their bodies figured out on their own. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about that too. Yeah, the fact that and that's a good way of thinking about it as well. The fact that you are sometimes what wasting precious time that isn't just time like on a linear scale, but like a specific time point at which they really could capitalize on getting better and they're not because junk is getting in the way. So how do we learn our own biases then? And I'll say politely because I know nice matters to you. How do we figure out what other people's biases are and determine when we want to address it? I mean, what I've learned is I sometimes start and say, okay, this is my disposition. This is where I'm coming from. You might be coming from a different place, but I wouldn't, or I would or wouldn't do that because my understanding is this. Can you tell me more about what your background is or why why, why that has worked for you or why you think this should work? So if sometimes I'm just happy to raise my own biases as a way for them to go, you know, that's true. And I am, you know, I've always worked with this population and it could be different with this population. That's true. And I do find we get to, we both get to a point of, well, that's true, which is really all we're kind of asking for in these professional circumstances. You can't go and make a clinician do something. You can't go and make it happen. You can hopefully influence that person and maybe be positively influenced by them. But really that that true rings, I think, eternally in their head that I don't think I know everything. Let me let me at least be a little skeptical and that's okay. Right. So introducing skepticism within your conversations with people. And with your own decision making where you say, look, it could be me, but. I don't know. I don't know that I've personally found that to work very well for me. <laughs> okay. Okay. What what works? I, I'm I'm not so sure that I've identified what works when it comes to the the practices within the realm of pediatric SLPs because that's my kind of expertise within like speech and language disorders and stuff. I'm not so sure I've identified how to best kind of get people out of a rut that they're in and move them out of it with some of the most like heavy pseudoscientific type stuff in our field, like non-speech oral motor exercises and tongue tie and stuff, which in among pediatric SLPs ends up being like the poster child of like, you know, where this these type of hot, you know, conversations get really hot. And it's because a lot of the things are really money driven and people get super dug in and the people who are financially benefiting from people continuing to take courses on certain topics end up 
influencing people in a way that like, as soon as you start talking about it, it just goes south real fast. So like if I were to about some of the hot topics, question somebody, people, people's defenses come up real quick. It's almost, it's almost like they've experienced too much past trauma and negative interactions where the interactions among clinicians were so aggressive that anytime that topic comes back up, it's just hot immediately. You know what I'm saying? You mean it's like racism, (laughs) right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it gets hot really quick and there's almost no way to approach it, um, especially online. You know, in person, it's in person, it's way easier, but especially online where it just turns into a dumpster fire like that. Yeah, 100% in terms of not knowing somebody's tone and defenses coming up. And there are certain questions that get posted on social media. And it's just like people are already turning on their notifications and getting their popcorn out. They're like, ooh, it is going to be pretty up in here. And there are other ones you're just you're like, that's a pff, nothing. You know, nobody. And then, and then you, you might find out that there's 500 comments like, what the hell? What did I miss? So you, you, you kind of have to think about what I try to think about is, uh, for instance, a clinician, what is their motivation? Well, it's what we said before. They 100% want to help their patients. They want to be effective. They don't have as much time and they might not be as astute at learning information quickly enough to implement without it seeming like they have to take this long-term course and get a certification they add to their CV, then they can use it, right? So a lot of barriers to being skeptical about yourself and others, because it's almost like you're a marathoner and you stab yourself in the foot just for funsies. Like, who does that? I'm already good at this. I Why? It's working. My legs work. Why would I do that? Well, you know, no, no there's no, literally, I can't think of any reason why I would do that, right? Especially if success is determined subjectively by that clinician. Yes. And that's the part where people get most stuck is when you're determining success yourself within your own practice, there's a good chance that you're not seeing how things could be because you're only existing within your own therapy room. And that's why evidence that contradicts things that people think work is so difficult. So for instance, uh, Katrina Steele does a couple of really good reviews about uh, really popular uh, therapy approaches. So far, the last two have been device driven. One was the IOP, which is the Iowa Oral Por- Performance Instrument. And the other one is EMST, Excretory Muscle Strength Training. And people, I think, thought the literature was just going to say, well, obviously, pushing on an air-filled bulb against resistance with your tongue not only makes it stronger at that task, but obviously translates to swallowing. Because when I go to the gym and I do curls, it is a bit easier for me to get my groceries from the grocery store to the car. I mean, it has to translate. It can't just be so task-specific. So people were shocked to find that every study didn't necessarily support that, and it's pretty inconclusive. And But the problem that I think people have is, the same way they didn't have the link physiologically for why it would help that, they can't figure out the link for, of course, it doesn't do that. So they're like, but why doesn't this work? It's like, why would it work? The first question should have always been, when I'm doing this, why should this work? That way, that way, when you get around to the study that says sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you go, yes, and I think I know the circumstances where it does and where it doesn't. I came in with a blank state where I was going to let the research and my patients help me build the evidence over time as I track progress, as opposed to they said it works, it works, I'm using it because it works. What do you mean it doesn't work? Yeah. And, and we, I don't, I don't know that most of us have enough practice. When I say us, I mean like us clinicians have enough practice with 
weighing contradictory pieces of evidence because I get a lot of feedback from people all the time where they're like, oh, but this study said this and this study said this and they say slightly different things. So which one's the truth? And it's like, well, let's dig a little deeper and figure out why they could have found those findings findings in this context and slightly different findings in this context. May I ask you a question? And it's because I don't know. So I'm always very willing to say that my lab and any other swallowing lab that does video fluoroscopy where you're using x-ray videos of a swallow or fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, also known as fees, where you put a lighted camera down someone's nose, right? Those are our imaging techniques. Neither of those are naturalistic. Neither of those are regular eating, talking, you're eating, you're talking, you're laughing, you're doing whatever while you're eating. They're just a continuous stream of food as opposed to a discrete 5 ml thin liquid and hold on, hold, hold, hold. Okay, floor on and swallow. Like it's so not realistic. And I'm very happy to say we've actually never seen a swallow in the wild. You know, we've only, you know, as soon as the cameras are on, suddenly it's like, oh, they're watching, right? And swallowing is not meant to be watched. Not like, is the second you say, say that again or breathe normally, like people hyperventilate, right? Because it's a background activity as it should be, and it's not supposed to have a lot of attention give, drawn to it. Now, that also means that we don't understand the system very well because it's always under the experimental conditions. The question I have for you, and so I, what I'm saying is, I think to answer your question, the reason that we don't, we're not able to draw those connections is because we don't really understand that much about swallowing. As scientists, much less by the time a clinician's dealing with it, it's, it's really hard if they don't have imaging, right? In communication, my understanding is that it is really hard to actually conduct studies that's testing natural communication. In a natural setting, it's usually more of the speaker, more of the listener. You have your paradigm set up. It's not like you and I right now. Just, I mean, think about the barriers we have. We're on Zoom. I'm seeing your face. It's kind of real time. I have a microphone. But I still feel that despite all these unnatural things, which would be obviously more natural if you're in front of me and I could see your face more readily, it still feels very good. But even this, not even like kind of off communication, virtual situation, it still feels really good. But my understanding is that from kids to adults, there is, you're, we're not actually really studying full communication. We're sort of breaking up the parts of it. And then by the time the clinician gets it, it's like this study studied that part. And so we have a device for that part. And that study studied this part. So they still have to be able to extrapolate to the system, even though the devices or the, the technique or the approach is only working on this part of communication or the way the brain works. Same thing with swallowing. You can have an IOP all day for the tongue, but the tongue is only one part of everything. And you can make it stronger at pushing that bulb to the roof of your mouth, but it's such a highly integrated, complicated system. Of course, one little thing targeting one part of the whole system can't possibly work unless you let them eat food or let these people communicate. Yeah, in my realm, the ana analogy or an analogy would be like language, where there's studies that show what work well for, you know, pragmatics, and there's studies specifically of morphology, and there's studies specifically of syntax, but you really have to be able to like integrate them all. And then, you know, there's studies about, you know, how does language impact reading and how does reading impact language and how is reading different than, you know, written communication and stuff like that. So clinicians definitely get frustrated by that rightly so because then they end up sometimes feeling like there's like a laundry list of things to be choosing from and it's a lot to keep track of all the various things they could be trying because a lot of times the science just focuses on one specific thing like if you're trying to improve morphology do x and the clinician's like okay cool yes yes but i've got a kid with a language disorder who has a whole bunch of different things going on so like what do i try first you know like what should i be focusing on 
And there actually aren't very many. I was just on a phone call conversation with a couple scientists about that of this the other day. There's not very many hierarchies or trajectories of first you should target this, then you should work on this, then you should work on this. And so it leaves people having to do a lot of problem solving. You know, our our jobs are difficult. Our jobs are difficult and the decisions we make for our clients. What what I want people to hear in this conversation is that you and I are people who obviously are obsessed with this idea of evidence. And we like to have a discussion. We like to debate and have this argument. And we, again, as we said, you might come out of these with more questions than answers, but that's what we're after here. We're after saying it is okay to be skeptical. You are not what do they say all the time? Speaking truth to power every time you say, hey, tell me more about so-and-so. It's, we're not asking for, you know, a protest with placards every time you ask a question, but at least let them live in your head. Allow the questions to circulate your head and then you do what you can control is yourself. You might not be able to control everybody else, but what you can do is say, huh, you know what? I don't know that I'm in the position to even ask the question because I'm not sure that the answer would even make sense for me to come back with a reasonable question. But because I don't even know that, I can at least get that information. And then when I do ask, tell me more about your rationale for this, especially students who have super CFY supervisors or extern placements that are undoing knowledge that you may have gained in another realm that you thought was sound. And now they're competing and you don't know who to believe it is you have the power to ask the questions. You have the power to collect your data about your patients over time. You have the power to figure out what is objective data? What is subjective data? How do I track my patients to collect evidence on what I'm doing every day instead of looking at a paper that is so hyper-experimental, it's not even a realistic, generalizable clinical scenario. But it's my job to put those together and figure out where one begins and the other ends and where do they overlap? That's what we all have control over. And so the skepticism part, I think, can be really dealt with immediately by individuals who decide, you know what, I don't know if what I'm doing works. And here's why. I don't track my data over time. I don't look at these patients and and say, yep, definitely this technique has shown that over three months of working with this person, I've been able to track this change. And I know that this part is subjective, but I also have these objective data. And when I put them together, this is how I'm defining success. To me, those are straightforward steps that a lot of people can actually take part of. And unfortunately, our research methods classes should have trained us on that because to me, that's where it's useful. What are the everyday clinical scenarios where they're collecting data or evidence to help them? in addition to science. So I really think that each person can be skeptical. Each person can look at their own trajectories with their patients. Each person can do the work to figure out what are the kinds of measures I can take and track. And then how do I interpret that and bring it to other people and say, hey guys, look what I'm saying. I actually don't think this technique is really very effective. However, under this circumstance, I've noticed these changes. Let's talk about this. People are very excited about data because it's not a it's not a reflection on you and what you know. It's the data. And it's and the, you know, what you're doing with your clients and the, you know, things that topics that you're discussing and the practices that you're either choosing to do or not to do, none of it's personal. I think that's the hardest part. Like, I I think that I think that like in this conversation, it shouldn't be personal. I think that's I think that's actually the hardest part in this conversation is I feel like you've you're really comfortable with that really comfortable with having difficult discussions with and like not taking things personally and be like, we're just talking about information. Like it's no big deal. We're just talking about information, but I'm not so sure that's the way 
most people feel. Well, I, I, I also want to interrupt you and say, even the way you presented that to me was very flowery. <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah. so sure that's the way other people feel. Instead of saying, that doesn't apply to everybody. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I am very much, I told you I had the re- a reputation among like, you know, EBP lovers of being the nice one. And what's hilarious to me is when people think that I'm abrasive when it comes to the evidence. I'm like, seriously, like, who else are you hanging out with? Like, I, I give it to I give it to you about as gently as I possibly can. Like, I don't know what else I can do to make you comfortable. And you know what, maybe, maybe that's okay. So we talked about conversations that raise the, you know, the hair and this on the back of your neck, like racism. Maybe there are just some things that we're not going to be comfortable with right now until we're able to say, oh, I get it now. I have, I understand the margins, or the boundaries of my knowledge. This, this circle is too small. I need to, I need to be able to stretch my arm to get to the margins of my knowledge. And I can do that. I can empower myself to do it. But you're right. To me, it's not even a difficult conversation. It's just a conversation. There's, it's not me. It's, it's the data. It's the knowledge. And I don't wrap myself up in it. I get frustrated that we can't have the conversation. And that's, that's where it gets personal. Like, ah, I wish we could do this and and not be about that. But I, I, I appreciate 100% what you're saying, which is my disposition to, it's not about you. It's about the data does not fly that very, fly very well immediately with people. And there some sense of, making people feel like it's okay to do this is really essential in certain circumstances, isn't it? And that's what you're really good at. Yeah. And also leading with, you know, because I, I definitely would never advocate for not saying something when you see a problem in front of you among fellow clinicians. So that there, it's, that's, it's not appropriate to not say anything, right? But I do a lot of like trying to lead with empathy, you know, so I'm like, oh, oh gosh, okay, so if we're going to have this conversation, like I need to at least first let this person know that I'm not here to attack them and I need to establish some level of trust if at all possible. And if I can, then this will end up going, you know, a little bit better because most people I personally have found do not deal very well as soon as they start to hint, get a hint of conflict or a hint of you in any way bringing something that counters what they're saying. So anyhow. No, thank you for bringing, I mean, that's, I show me your ways, Meredith, show me your ways. <laughs> I, that, but sh- I, I don't think I have the ways. That's, that's the crazy thing about all of it is, you know, honestly, like I think about this all the time. I work at it all the time and I tried to build my own skill set all the time, but sometimes you're damned if you do and you, you're damned if you don't. And so like, here's an example of <laughs> what I mean by that. Like, um, so when at the, like through the informed SLPs, social media accounts, when we do try to do any type of de-implementation where we get a journal article come through and we're like, this is a perfect example of, you know, the type of things that we need to talk about when it comes to, you know, being a little more hesitant to reach for that tool for certain reasons, you know, out of your toolbox. Sometimes we get a ton of blowback and I'm always kind of weighing the pros and cons of making people really, really angry where we get like a whole bunch of like private DMs that are like, we thought you could trust, we could trust you as a good resource when it comes to our field science, but like you guys are biased, you know, (laughs) stuff like that. And, you know, like leaving and, you know, slamming the door and doing what, what do they call it? Like in social media groups, like the, oh, the like flounce exits where people are like, I'm leaving this group. I'm blocking you all. You know what I mean? 
And uh, and so I'm always trying to figure out the way to get people the information they need and avoid the like fire pushbacks where people are like, we hate you now. You know what I mean? And to a certain extent, that's just not possible in some search situations. Like it's just not possible. Okay, so I totally know what you mean now when you say damned if you do, damned if you don't. And I've been having this situation as an only in some circumstances. So, you know, if there is a meeting where the discussion is about race and I'm the only black person there, if I don't say anything, it's like, well, she didn't say anything. If she says something, it's like, this is what she said. And, you know, it's just like, okay, thanks. And that happens sometimes when there are conversations around swallowing. And if I'm sort of happen to be head and shoulders above the individuals who are talking about swallowing because they're brand new trainees. If I don't, if they have a conversation with saying this works, this works. And I just don't say anything. It's like, well, she didn't say anything. So she didn't have an opposition. But if I say something, then it goes on, you know, into perpetuity. Dr. Humbert doesn't like this, this technique. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. that I neither like nor like anything. I, I actually don't have enough. Cons- I, I know too much to say that I like or don't like anything. We just need to have the toolbox hand slap where you need to declare why you're reaching for that toolbox, that that tool. That's all I'm saying. Make a believer out of me. Shark tank me. Like, make me your Mark Cuban and see if I'm buying in. Like, am I, did you get a deal? Right? That's what it is to me. So, yeah, I totally know what you mean by by that. And that it's kind of a good place to be if you feel like you can contribute and you can deal with, as you said, the fire coming from people. Because people do get very personally upset about things it's like they've been you know red herring or deceived this whole time hoodwinked led astray because they always thought this worked and it's hard to let go of that yeah and you know we're really social beings and you know want to make sure that like the people around us are you know happy and connected to us and stuff like that and being ostracized or attacked is really difficult for anybody you know what i mean but i've also noticed that play out where I have I I recently have tried to make a more explicit decision to because our social media media accounts are huge. Right. So I bring up social media all the time because like we end up like through the informed SLP, we have a ton of like traffic and conversations through our accounts. But I've started to make the explicit decision to not refer to or promote accounts that promote non-evidence-based practices that are just very clearly, you know, rarely appropriate to use in your toolbox, basically ever. And it's interesting because like people who are close to me and actually, you know, have a little bit more insight into, you know, what we've gone through as a business and stuff like that will make fun of me and be like, you know, so is this person on your shit list? Is this person on your shit list? Is this person on your shit list? And it's like, and I'm like, my shit list isn't that long. But quite frankly, like, there's a lot of social media influencers and businesses in our field who I am serious, they really are very driven by traffic. And if they think that associating with a certain business brand or person will get them either money or a traffic boost, they'll do it in a heartbeat. And so the fact that I've started to push back on a lot of that stuff and refuse associations with certain businesses and refuse associations with certain people has been, quite frankly, like really interesting and difficult and made me realize just how much 
things are driven by money and power and influence, even within our teensy tiny little field, you know, <laughs> like, my gosh, no, <laughs> no, we're not exempt. We're not exempt from being human. We're lazy and we're drawn to drama, to power, to money, to status, just like everybody else. And I'll tell you one thing that I've done. I, again, I happen to not have any strong feelings about any particular approach or technique or device at all. But I do think that the approach that was used in the critical thinking and dysphagia management course that we had, and some of these these examples are on STEP, which is Swallowing Training Education Portal, where people can see how these played out. What we did is we brought as many stakeholders in the room at the same time. So we have the clinicians. We have the scientists where I, I was representing science and we have the manufacturers there and everybody gets to participate in the conversation. The only stakeholder we didn't have were patients. And that's because the CEU course, and it wasn't always easy to incorporate that because people wouldn't be quite as honest about things. If someone's talking about their individual, you don't want to say, well, that was a dumbass idea. Why that speech pathologist do that? And the poor patient's like, what do you mean? I could be better now. Like, we don't want that. But at least we had the, the clinician the scientists and the manufacturers there or the industry partners there because they are stakeholders in our field. And sometimes they get a bad rap and it's not because of anything they did wrong. It's just because, well, if you're getting paid for it, it can't be good. But I mean, I, I do think that they should have a platform where they can learn from us as much as we can learn from them. And so if everybody's keeping each other honest in that room, like someone says, well, it's already been established that and I go, oh, has it? Can you tell us more about how it's been established? Well, there aren't any studies, but I see, aha. Now, I didn't have to call them out, but they basically put what on record that they actually just think this. And it happens to clinicians as well. You know, they'll say, well, I use this because it definitely does that. And um, and someone will say, well, can you help me understand? Like, what can you, what's the citation or what's the evidence? Well, I mean, like, I just think that some, oh, okay, okay, thanks for that. You know, so hearing that over and over again, people start to raise their hand in advance and go, I don't have any evidence. I da 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 But I, and they're like disclaimering, they're using disclaimers in advance because now they've seen two people get caught out there, you know, with their flapping in the breeze, so to speak. That process is just, I mean, it's its phenomenal because it's polite, it's professional, but we now all have the knowledge and the language to say, help me understand whether or not this evidence is something I should care about and see that person go, well, you know, actually, I don't know. Good point. I don't know. So let me rephrase that. I don't know if, but this is what I think. Beautiful. It's all in how you, how you put it out there in the world. Yeah. I would love to see more of that, more accountability and conversations around data and the quality of some of the courses and products we're consuming to be able to have environments where people can do things like discuss the evidence behind tools and techniques and especially hold businesses accountable who may have claims on their website that their membership is evidence-based, but when you push them for more information, find that the evidence they're referring to is either weak or non-existent or things like calling your whole website evidence-based is pretty nonsensical in the first place. But in reality, that doesn't happen most of the time, right? Most of the time, businesses are held accountable by nobody. And if someone does want to raise a red flag, they either get labeled a mean old bully and <laughs> get pushed back that way, or they get sent paperwork by that business's attorney that they better shut their mouth or else. And that's why a lot of people, especially fellow business owners, know better than or are just afraid to 
call out businesses or individuals who have a fair amount of power because the attorney's fees that follow that are not fun. And if you don't believe me that positive transparency flows like liquid, but negative transparency is impossible to get out of people, try publicly asking someone in a leadership position or who is a business owner to list five products or websites in our field that they think are like inaccurate or misleading. And they know, they sure do know, I guarantee most people could name 10, but they won't say. And so you're right in that the best possible option is when you can get the business itself to tell you the truth and answer your questions in a straightforward and verifiable way, because there's almost no other way for it to happen. So as the informed SLP founder, how do you think we should sort of wrap this up in terms of, do we just end saying, so just be skeptical, people, walk on, like, is that enough? Do people still want to know what to do? Because to me, we just said, no one can tell you what to do. You have to figure it out. But people hate that. People want to end with a thing. They want to end with a thing. And maybe there's no thing. Well, I mean, I feel like I'm like negative Nancy today when it's coming to being like, don't trust people. Oh my gosh. Because we, we, you know, as you said, like you were like, I feel like you're one of those type of people who start everybody at a hundred and then you're like shocked when they get knocked down to like a 70. Yeah. That's completely me. <laughs> I, I'm just constantly like appalled that anybody would ever fib about anything, you know? Yes. <laughs> fib. Oh my God. That was like a Midwestern fib. You know? Oh my goodness. And so, and so for me personally, honestly, Honestly, the, what I've learned the most when it comes to trying to figure out what to do in clinical practice is to not put trust in what everybody says at face value, because I personally am someone who tends to want to put trust in what people say at face, face value. And I do think that that's a relevant take home for a lot of clinicians, because I do think there's a lot of people like me. And the more I understand why people lie, why people exaggerate, why people, you know, don't immediately come out with that statement of, well, we don't really know for sure, but, and instead present it as we fix X, you know, um, for me, the process of getting to realize that has just been a lot about trying to like understand people better, like trying to understand pe why people would lead with certainty when they actually aren't certain. And why it bothers you that somebody might not lead with certainty. And I think what happens is people don't like to think that someone would be deceptive. And somehow, somehow it's this view of the world. Like I, I believe that people are good deep down. There are people who come out the womb with this whole, or they've been nurtured to believe people are good deep down. And it could partly be that that's your disposition. And somehow it just makes you feel better. You can sleep at night that people are good and no one would intend to do something. Right. Um, I, uh, have an immigrant family that came to a different country expecting to be duped and deceived and, you know, sent us out there as latchkey kids. Like people are going to try to get you. You got to be ready. Like get your, have your guns up all the time. So I'm far more comfortable with my blockades up. Like someone's going to try to sell me something. That person's going to try to do this because that's just the way I survived in a big city as a kid by myself. Right. So it, it feels great to know that I, I had my defenses up and the worst thing that could ever happen to me is that I let somebody get over. Oh my God, that whole fool me once thing. There's not even fool me once. You know what I mean? Like we're not getting to twice. You know, I don't have to remember the rest of the thing like George Bush couldn't remember it. We're not getting to number two. 
You know, so that that to me is that I protected myself. I didn't get, you know, foolishness dumped in my head then I have to spend five years taking it out. I got to decide what my brain got in there. My canvas has what I want in it. So it just, you know, people can just explore that, explore. Maybe you're somewhere in between, but people often, they, many people might identify with you and many people might identify with me, but it's that, it's that process that's so interesting to me. So I'm really interested in what people comment on this and say, I'm a Debbie Downer and I love it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I'll be interested. I'll be interested too, to hear where people still feel stuck, you know, because that's where I think our blinders are on. Like both of us are so in touch with the field's evidence that um, it would be easy for us to like not recognize where people get stuck. And so that'll be interesting to hear too. And I'm also interested in where people feel liberated. Like I, you gave me permission to ask a question here and there. And so we are now at the end of the third episode in the first trilogy. And I'm, I'm really excited about the story that I think we may have told I think the first story is nobody knows what the hell they're talking about when it comes deep down because if if the systems are far too complicated, the reason that we need to have stronger programs to combat this gap is because the systems are complicated and there's no way that any program can equip anyone to be so well-versed in both child language and swallowing. It's just not possible, which is why we have to be very aware that we are prone to pseudoscience or to... Bad, really strong misinterpretations of good science. And you put all that together, you have episode one, two, and three. Enjoy.